0: Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology.
1: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news,
2: Hi, everyone. I'm Lauren Good, a senior writer at Wired, and you are listening to the Gadget Lab. I'm joined by my co hosts, Wired senior editor Michael Calori. Ahoy, oh, ahoy. And Wired senior writer Ariel Pardez. Hey. Today, we're going to be talking about ch- 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 changes. Yeah, that was really bad. Instagram <laughs> is changing a feature that a lot of people would argue is fundamental to the way the platform works, while Apple has made a change to its laptop keyboards so that they finally do work. Or so we hope. But first, we're going to talk about Instagram. Last week, Instagram CEO Adam Mosseri announced that they plan to test a feature where Instagram hides like counts for users. Rather than explain it myself, I'm going to put Arielle on the spot here because she was actually on stage at Wired 25, our annual conference in San Francisco, with the head of Instagram, Adam Mosseri, when he dropped this news. Actor Tracy Ellis Ross was also interviewed on stage. It was a delightful interview. Uh, She's a delightful person. But Ariel, tell us the news about Instagram likes and take us through that conversation. Happily, happily. Um, So for context, Adam Masseri has just
3: finished his first year as the head of Instagram. He took over after co-founders Kevin Systrom and Mike Krieger left. Um, And it's been a big year for the company. So I wanted to basically have a conversation about what that year was like where he sees the future of the platform and whether or not instagram is good for people um and adam seems to grapple with that responsibility quite consciously he he brought up some big problems that are on the platform like hate speech um but also these more acute problems like how young people are feeling when they use it and the social pressures that come with instagram so Adam basically said on stage that the place that he wants Instagram to lead and innovate is on that piece around well-being or combating bullying and one of the small but hopefully impactful ways that he wants to change things is by removing some of the social pressure around likes. So actually I'll let him explain some of the rationale for this himself. Here's a little clip of how Adam justified this in that conversation we had.
4: It's about young people. The idea is to try and depressurize Instagram, make it less of a competition, give people more space to focus on connecting with people that they love, things that inspire them. Um, but it's really focused about young people. on young, young people. Um, we have to see how it affects how people feel about the platform, how it affects how they use the platform, how it affects the creator ecosystem. But I've um, been spending a lot of time on this personally.
3: So that's some of the justification around the decision to remove the likes. But Instagram is also doing tons of other things around bullying um one of the examples that adam said on stage was the the platform has introduced little points of friction where they think you might be bullying someone so um they'll give you like a little bit more space before they suggest Uh, that you tag someone in a particular post and you can actually restrict the way that somebody else interacts with you on the platform. So Lauren, if you're bullying me, I can hit this button called restrict and that makes it a little bit harder for you to tag me in anything. It makes it a little harder for you to send me messages.
2: Um, And these are all just like sort of small little ways they're trying to change behavior on the platform. That part's really fascinating and I think we should probably note that this hiding of likes that's going to happen—it's—it's it's somewhat limited, right? It's being tested. It's not for everybody. I think some of the initial headlines that came out after your conversation with Adam just um, indicated that it was a sweeping—a sweeping measure. How is this actually going to roll out? Yeah, that's a great point to make.
3: So they've been testing this in seven different countries, and the United States will be the the eighth market they're testing this in. But it is. Technically, a test. So that means that not every single Instagram user will have this feature. It also means they're not committed necessarily to rolling this out as a permanent product feature. Though I did ask Adam on stage, like, is the company committed to doing this even if it means a hit in engagement? And he said yes, that that was a sacrifice that they would be willing to make if this improves the well being of its users.
4: We will make decisions that hurt the business if they're good for people's well being and health because it has to be good for the business over the long run
2: mm, bravo mm. can I just say like because <laughs> that's not the norm
4: i think it should uh, I think it should be the I do want to be careful here, though, because well-being is uh, like, I mean, there's there's a lot of research behind what well-being means. There's academic definitions, et cetera. We don't know that this is going to be good for people's medical well-being. But that is spiritually what we're trying to do. We're trying Mm -hmm. to reduce anxiety. We're trying to reduce social comparison. These are issues Mm -hmm. that are becoming more acute, particularly with young people, particularly uh, in a mobile first world. Um, But I do want to make sure I'm not overstepping and claiming something that I don't have scientific proof of.
2: Mike, what do you make of this?
4: Well, I think the thing that's
0: interesting is that Moserri was very clear that this is a change that they want to make to make the platform better for people, and particularly young people. And he did say that, you know, if it harms the business, that's okay. But I do wonder how it's going to affect all the influencers and all the brands on Instagram that rely on likes in order to promote themselves, right? So, I mean, I'll still be able to like a photo on Instagram. Mm-hmm. I'll still be able to like a video. It's just when I'm scrolling through my feed, I won't see which photos have how many likes. And so it's going to keep showing me things that it thinks I want to engage with, but I'm not going to have any signal that I should engage with it because maybe I want to give it a like to make it better or not give it a like because it already has 40,000 likes or something like that. Um, I'm not sure that's the way that, People expect Instagram to work, so it's going to be a very big shift. And I wonder if the people who rely on Instagram for businesses are going to, or for their business, are, are going to be affected by this. You know, the the whole thing about if we ask you to mention a product in your post and it gets ten thousand likes, we'll give you a bonus. Is that sort of business model going to go away for influencers on the platform? And if it does, the influencers go somewhere else. Does everybody else keep going on using Instagram? There's a lot of sort of gray area there that I don't know how it's going to shake out.
2: Yeah, that part's really interesting. I was meeting with an entrepreneur the other day who runs a popular direct-to-consumer company. And when I mentioned that this change would be happening, they literally whipped out their phone and made a note you know, to check up on how this is going to impact their business. Because for a lot of direct-to-consumer brands, Instagram is huge. It's a huge way for them to market themselves. It creates a relatively sort of low-cost approach to customer acquisition. Um, You see people, you know, you can get a a sense of how your customer base or your fans are feeling based on the comments that they leave. And in general, it seems as though on Instagram – at least this is the way I use it, once you see somebody has exceeded a certain number of likes, you're more likely just to like it yourself because it gives you this sense of anonymity, like you're just another person in the whole messy box of things and that your like is less likely to really go, you know, be noticed in mm-hmm. some way. On the flip side, though, there are a lot of people who buy Instagram followers, which creates this really disingenuous experience. I was reading this article on The Cut the other day and it's titled... I'm a normal person and I buy my Instagram followers. The writer is anonymous but identifies as a 35-year-old woman from Chicago and she explains how for as little as 10 bucks you can buy 500 followers at you know at a clip. And then they start to slowly, you know, like your stuff more and more and then eventually they go away and then you have to buy more. It's this revolving door of purchased followers. That to me just seems like that person is just inflating their presence on Instagram in a way that feels inauthentic and disingenuous. And maybe by cutting back on likes, you remove that inauthentic experience, but you also remove the pressure for some of these people who feel like their worth is based on Instagram likes. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much for reading my piece in the cut. <laughs> sure thing. Um, <laughs> no, I think that's Well right. done.
3: Instagram has actually said a lot Um, to that effect that they want to shift the experience on instagram from one of social comparison to one of social conversation right you should be focusing on the content not the likes or the number of followers um, that that a particular post receives i heard some interesting cynical gossip around this though that the the company may be doing this because it engenders good PR and seems like a nice thing to do, but actually it just disguises from the fact that Instagram is already seeing a drop in engagement, and this can help explain some of why those numbers are dwindling, even though they're dwindling already.
2: Well, so it's a preemptive move, in that's, a way. I mean, that's explain. a theory.
3: I don't mm. have a whole lot of evidence to support that, but I think um, as much as we're commending the company for this move, which we should be, I think it's a great move, um, I think there are also maybe more cynical reasons why a company as big as Instagram would be interested in this.
0: Their company as big as Facebook. That's right. So I'm really curious about what's going to happen if it doesn't work. Like the goal here is to make Instagram a better place, right? To depressurize it, to make it more inviting to more kinds of people, especially young people. So what happens if it doesn't work? And the company still sees the same social pressures as it did even when likes were on the platform. So if everybody all of a sudden can't see likes anymore and they still feel the same pressure, how else can the company depressurize? What other sorts of things can it do to get the same effect if this doesn't work?
3: Yeah, that is the million dollar question Um, and something that Instagram is grappling with already. Like they know that likes are not going to be the thing that changes the environment on Instagram, right? It's like one very small thing that will hopefully have some impact, but it's gotta be part of a much broader push, right? So some of the work they're already doing is around using things like machine learning to filter out toxicity, um, to try and subtly nudge people's behavior toward things that are nice and away from things that look like bullying, um, but they have a lot more work to do. One of the really interesting examples that came out of our conversation with Adam was around how Instagram deals with subtle aggressive behavior. Um, He mentioned that Instagram already works with lots of researchers and mental health organizations that specifically study aggression online. And some of the interesting things they found are that you might do something that's aggressive, like let's say I post a photo with Lauren's crush. And then Lauren feels hurt by that. But nobody except for me and Lauren will know that that's bullying, right? Otherwise, it just looks normal. So they're working on all these different ways to sort of like unwind that kind of behavior. But it's very, very difficult and complicated. And it's it's got to involve something much more intricate than just disappearing the likes.
2: Yeah, maybe it's unreasonable to expect that these small changes, as big as, as, big as they may be because of the number of people they affect, to think that it's going to to change social science and the way in which we behave as human beings. Um, I'm pretty sure people have been like, I don't know, parading around other people's crushes for all of eternity. I'm never telling you who my crush is. I'm um,
0: <laughs> Double tap.
2: <laughs> right, exactly. Double like. Um, but yeah, but like all these kinds of behaviors, you know, bullying, unfortunately, it's something that happens in real life as well. It translates to social platforms. It is sometimes amplified by social platforms, but maybe it's too much to ask to think that by Instagram, you know, experimenting with moving alike, that we're going to fix some of the larger ales of social media, at least at this point in time. Well, that was a great conversation, and I highly recommend that everybody, when you're done listening to this podcast, go to our website, that is wired.com, and you can watch Ariel's entire interview with Adam Mosseri and Tracy Ellis Ross. It's really great. We're gonna take a break, and when we return, we're gonna talk all
1: about Apple's terrible laptop keyboards. Be right back. Hackers and cyber criminals have always held this kind of special fascination. Obviously, I can't tell you too much about what I do. It's a game.
0: Who's the best hacker? And I was like, well, this is child's
1: play. I'm Dina Temple Raston. And on the Click Here podcast, you'll meet them and the people trying to stop them.
4: We're not afraid of the attack, we're afraid of the creativity and the intelligence of the human being behind it.
1: Click Here stories about the people making and breaking our digital world.
0: AI machines.
1: Satellite. Engine ignition. Click here. And liftoff. Click here. Every Tuesday and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Welcome back to the Gadget Lab. On Wednesday of this week, Apple announced a new line of 16-inch MacBook Pros. It's a pretty standard laptop upgrade with one big change. It has a brand new keyboard. Finally, our problems are over. We think. Maybe. At least we hope. All right, well, I still don't have a working E key on my MacBook Pro from 2017. So. All right, to back up a little bit, the last generation of MacBooks had a bunch of issues with their keyboards. Keys would get stuck. They were prone to getting debris and dust under them, or keys would break off entirely, which is what happened in my case. The problem stemmed from the fact that the keyboards had been designed with something called a butterfly switch, and that is one of the changes that is made with these new MacBook Pros. Mike, uh, let's back it up a little bit. What are butterfly switches? Why are they different from regular keyboards? What is Apple doing?
0: Sure. Uh, let me put on my nerd glasses. All right. Oh, wait, no, I wear them all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so a scissor switch, which is the normal laptop keyboard switch, uh, is like an X-shaped spring that sits underneath the keycap, sort of like a, like a little scaffolding, a really springy scaffolding. And when you press on the key, it squishes down and then you let go and it pops back up. Now a butterfly switch, which is the one that's in the most recent um, MacBook Pros, not the new one, but the, the ones that everybody has a problem with uses a butterfly switch. Uh, it's called that because it looks like a butterfly. It has a little crease down the middle and then two little wings that sort of come up underneath the key in a V shape. So when you press on it, the butterfly's wings basically flatten and then they spring back up into the V shape when you let go. Um, a butterfly switch has its advantages because uh, the mechanism is shorter in height, so you can make a thinner laptop with a uh, a keyboard that is um, you know thinner, like flush against the the um, the body of the of the laptop. Uh, but it has one big disadvantage, which is that uh, because those little butterfly wings have to flatten all the way down in order to register a key press, if anything gets underneath the butterfly wings like a crumb or a toenail or something toenail? Then, <laughs> Ew. well you never know oh, right man. this is a laptop think about all the places you use your laptop <laughs> do
2: not cut your toenails in front of your laptop thank you very much
0: it, they could they find their way in there okay they're absolutely do, everywhere
2: do they walk by themselves after you cut them <laughs> what that's okay that's okay, that's okay. That's please continue <laughs> keyboards
0: so because the butterfly's wings have to flatten all the way down if something gets under there then it could prevent that from happening and you won't register a key press also um It can, depending on what kind of debris gets under there, what kind of crumb we're talking about, uh, it could cause it to stick and then you get like double presses out of every keystroke. So Apple is doing away with that switch and replacing it with the superior but requires more height scissor
2: switch. We should give a shout out to Casey Johnson, who wrote a story for The Outline back in the fall of 2017, identifying some of the major issues that she was having with her MacBook keyboard, really for the first time calling out Apple for this poor design. Wall Street Journal columnist Joanna Stern later wrote a column. uh, I think she wrote the entire column without her E key because like me, her e-key had stopped working. A lot of people have been calling out this problem. Apple has maintained that it is a small fraction or percentage of its total user base who have complained about these issues. Apple has never really formally apologized. They have instituted things like a repair program in case you come in with a bum keyboard, but it's not really the company style to come out and say, hey, we messed up. Instead, they've just, they've just, tried to fix the thing now. And it's going to be available on this 16-inch MacBook Pro and hopefully coming to more MacBooks in the future. Ariel, what do you make of this? Yeah, I mean, I read this interesting interview with
3: Phil Schiller, who's Apple's VP of Marketing, um, where he'd sort of evaded the apology, but did acknowledge that Apple has gotten a lot of feedback (laughs) and that the feedback from the Pro users in particular has been a big part of designing this new keyboard. Um, That interview also mentioned that apple has done research on the quote physiology of typing and the quote psychology of typing which i don't know what that means oh, but it's so apple i would love to know more <laughs> um yeah i mean i think the point here though is that like the company has has taken at least its pro customers complaints into account a little bit and has designed something that feels really pro um whether or not that trickles down is yeah, a little bit remaining to be seen um also we should note that it's an expensive
2: computer. That's right. It starts at $2,400 and goes up from there. I've been seeing some people tweet their screenshots of customizing a fully loaded machine and it gets close to $6,000 or Oof. more, I think. Yeah. So that is for pros. That's not for average people. But that said, I don't think that a working functional keyboard on a laptop should be limited to people who could afford this thing. Right. I really, I mean, I think it's time for Apple to just Fess up. Admit they made a mistake. We're entering the post-Joni Ive era. Make the things thicker. Give the people what they want. And what they want is a working keyboard across all of the laptops they could potentially buy. Preach. Well, you know, the, the, the working keyboard is really a pro feature, Right. Okay, yes. <laughs> the rest of us, the rest of us peasants will just have to go with missing E's. We can't even spell peasant.
0: Can you spell hot garbage without any I guess well, You yeah. have to put a J at the end.
2: Right. Exactly. <laughs> All right, on that note, we're going to take another quick BRAC. That's break without the E. <laughs> <laughs> and when we come back, we're going to do recommendations. How do you say that without an E?
0: Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on, of course you do. Introducing The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes, authors, and scientists, to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B is in boy, I. N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now.
2: All right, we're back for my favorite part of the show. We're going to talk about recommendations. We're going to give you our recommendations. Mike, why don't you go first?
0: Sure. Um, I want to recommend a watch. So since this is the Gadget Lab, uh, I want to recommend a gadget. It's a watch. It's a dumb watch. It's not a smart watch. I'm sort of anti smartwatch these days. I just like watches that tell time that don't ever need to be charged necessarily. So this is a watch by a company called 111, and it's solar-powered. It's called the SW2. Um, they have a bunch of different colors. They're all kind of fun. They're kind of surfy in a way. Uh, It's a watch that has a solar panel on the front, but you can't tell it's a solar panel. And the case is made out of bio resin and the strap is made out of um, recycled PET water bottles. So it's like a very ocean friendly, very environmentally friendly watch. And it's pretty cheap. $75. Hey now. Yeah. So for like, you know, an eco minded solar powered watch, it's a great. It's a great um, bargain. Um, it's also really stylish. I like it a lot. Now, if you have sort of like a like a surfy, sporty, beachy mindset, it's probably gonna fit your style more so than if you're like a uh, you know suits and um, fancy dress kind of person. However, uh, maybe just make it your weekend watch. So
2: yeah, I'm looking at it right now on 111's website. Mm-hmm. and 111, by the way, isn't that the name of a band?
0: Uh, that's three eleven. Oh, okay.
2: Regardless, <laughs> I'm looking at one eleven's website right now, and this does remind me a little bit of a, like a Nixon watch. If Nixon made watches that had more traditional clock faces, yeah, or like
0: freestyle, like it has a Velcro mm-hmm. band, mm-hmm. and you know it feels it feels surfy. But anyway, that's that's my recommendation. I I was wearing one for about a month, and I really loved it. And it charges in um, artificial light and in natural light, which is great for office workers.
2: And the company says that they are committed to donating 1% of all sales to environmental causes too, which is really nice.
0: Good on them. How
2: did you find out about them?
0: Uh, a Facebook post from an old
2: friend. Lovely. Yep. Facebook bringing everybody together. It's really <laughs> connecting the world. <laughs> really. Ariel. what's your recommendation? Uh, my recommendation is
3: something to read about not connecting the world. This is the December cover story of The Atlantic and it's called How America Ends. Um, It's it's a really beautifully written piece about some of the problems plaguing American democracy um, and what happens when a part of the population knows that it can no longer win elections but can't afford not to. So it draws some comparisons between this moment in political history with um, the Civil War and what happens when a group of politicians has to resort to uh, sort of undemocratic measures to stay in power. I found it super interesting. It's beautifully written. It gave me totally new perspective on uh, sort of what the Republican Party could be doing right now. In particular, it makes this argument that the party needs to strengthen the center right if it wants to get out of this moment in history. And a vibrant Republican Party depends on uh, the centrists right now more than ever. So an interesting read. Uh, Not super hopeful, but uh, very... Very well articulated. And who wrote this? Uh, Yoni Applebaum, who is the person who leads the Atlantic's
2: Ideas section. They've been doing some really great work over there lately. Yeah, yeah, they really yeah. have. I mean, as um, no, great as Wired, of course, but the Atlantic has a very strong staff, and they've been doing some great stuff. <laughs> we also have an Ideas section. Yes. Um, Lauren, what's your recommendation? Uh, my well, my first recommendation would be if you read that, and then you're feeling a little bit. Sad afterwards, as you might. Uh, I just read on the train yesterday Taffy Ackner's profile of Tom Hanks. Oh yes, excellent. So nice, nice little uplifting chaser about just an everyman, you know, seemingly nice guy. Uh, but anyway, my real recommendation this week is the book How to Do Nothing. I know I'm chasing most of the staff on this because everybody at Wired seems to really like this book. But it's a book written by Jenny Odell. She's an Oakland-based artist. Who wrote a book about conscientiously doing nothing. And by doing nothing, she doesn't mean literally nothing. She means doing nothing as a sort of act of resistance to the attention economy that has been built up around us. She describes the book as not quite a book of activism and not quite a self-help book, but somewhere in the middle. It's a series of essays and essays kind of in the traditional sense of her going on a journey through a different, I don't know, just exploring different areas of our attention economy and what our overwhelming desire to be productive all the time has done to our psyches and our overall well-being um, and how we should really embrace our free time more and and um, embrace art more too in these like seemingly really challenging times.
1: Mm.
2: I uh, admit I'm not finished with it yet, but I've been just tearing through it and I really really like it. I've already recommended it to two people in the time that I've started. Reading it. So um, I'm now recommending it to all of you, our fine listeners. Another thing that I really want to do that I recommend to everybody is I want to sleep more in 2020. That's a goal of mine. And I'm, I'm taking a page from Ariel here because mm. Ariel is a sleeper. You're mm-hmm. self described sleeper. Mm-hmm. Mike, tell us the story about when Ariel and you first started working together, what she told you. Uh,
0: one of the first things that I learned about you, Ariel, is that uh, you told me, I'm a sleepy, sleepy girl
2: still am (laughs) yeah still am and arielle just comes in like she's refreshed and she's a fantastic writer and she's productive but like productive in like the sense that you kind of have to get your job done not like overproductive in the jenny odell sense that she's trying to tell us to get away from like you very rarely seem like frenzied like you're just kind of like i don't know you're on it you're on it anyway i'm now convinced i'm convinced that i want to sleep more and be like arielle in 2020. And to that note, you should also go read Sarah Harrison's article on Wire.com this week about how sleep is really important for cleansing your brain.
3: Like, you have to sleep or you will die.
2: Yeah. It's, it's very bad for you to be underslept. Like, you have to sleep more underslept. or you will die sooner. Yeah. Or or
3: succumb to some kind of horrible brain disease.
0: We're going to follow your lead on this. And by the end of next year, we will all be more like you.
2: All right. That's our show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to give us feedback, you can leave us a review on your podcast app of choice. Really, we would love to hear your thoughts. We take your feedback very seriously. and We try to incorporate it in the show. You can also ping all of us on Twitter. Mike is at SnackFight. Ariel is at Pardesoteric. I'm at Lauren Good with an E at the end. Our producer, Boone Ashworth, is at Boone Ashworth. And you can also hit us up in the main handle. That's at Gadget Lab. Thank you again for listening. And we will be back next week.
0: The festival also features diverse vendors, as well as a specialty record, poster, and craft fairs, and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.
1: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you